Welcome to this week's episode of Seeking Proof, Finding Grace. I'm your host, Ron Campbell, and this week, as with every week, I want to start off by reminding you of the most important fact in the entire universe. God loves you. So this week, we're going to begin moving on from the cosmological argument, which was looking at the question of where did the universe come from? And we're going to take a little bit of a step back to look at the question of the universe that we've got. You know, remember, there were three different options on the table when we started the cosmological argument. The first was the universe was created by an intelligent outside third party. The second was the universe simply created itself from nothing. Out of nothing, everything came. And the third option was the universe has somehow existed past eternal. It's been around for forever, and therefore it requires no explanation. Of those three options, which are really the only three options we have available to us, during the course of our journey, we determined that the most likely option was the first option, that the universe had to be created by an outside third party. And I understand some people won't agree with me when I say that. But this week, we're going to shift gears and we're going to look at something called the teleological argument or the argument from fine tuning. And so we're going to roll up our sleeves and we're going to begin pulling this apart and looking at this question of what is fine tuning and what is the, this argument all about? Let's go ahead and expand on this topic a little bit more. And before I go any further, there's a couple of books that I want to recommend to you when you're on this journey and when you're looking at these questions that I think are excellent resources as you begin to examine these things. Uh, first and foremost, Lee Strobel. His books are amazing. The Case for Christ. In this case, The Case for a Creator. Fantastic book. Strongly recommend. This is an excellent introduction to the topic. And... This is, the, this is a great way to begin to wade into the topic as you're looking at this. He's got a series of books that are excellent to go through, and I would recommend tackling them in order. The Case for Christ, The Case for a Creator, The Case for Faith, The Case for the Real, Real Jesus. I mean, if you go through his books, Lee Strobel, amazing group of books. Uh, I've probably recommended before William Lane Craig's Reasonable Faith. It is This covers an enormous range of topics. He also touches on this topic and I think does an amazing job of these things. When you really want to roll up your sleeves and look at these topics in, in enormous detail, there's two books that I would strongly recommend. Steve, Dr. Stephen Meyer's book, The Return of the God Hypothesis, it is an amazing read and something that you absolutely should look at when you're looking at the question of fine-tuning, when you're looking at the question of biological complexity and things like that. Amazing read and something everyone ought to look at. And possibly the best book on this particular topic, A Fortunate Universe by Drs. Lewis and Barnes. It is an amazing book. It's not a tremendously long read, and it really does bring some of these enormously complicated scientific topics down to a very good level. For those of us who are not scientists, uh, to be able to look at and study this stuff, Dr. Meyer also does an amazing job of that as well. So just a few resources to consider on your own journey. The question in all of this is going to come down to one of two options. Does the universe show the evidence of design, or does the universe just show the appearance of design? Does it look like it's been designed, or does it act has it actually been designed? And that's going to be the real issue that we get to in all of this. And I think mathematics is going to be the final arbiter as we go through this as to really the question, what are the odds? You know, when you think about the lottery, and we talked about this before, I think, in some of the previous episodes, the odds of winning the lottery are somewhere right around 1 in 292 million. Each and every week, when they draw the numbers, I think, let's see, you have 69 white balls and 26 red balls. 
they draw five balls from the white category, so five of the 69 get drawn, and one of the 26 red balls get drawn. When you bring that together, that's one in 292 million are your chances of actually winning the lottery. Now, for most of us, most of us don't play the lottery because it's not worth the $2 because one in 292 million, those odds are bad enough. Most of us don't frequently play the lottery. Some folks do. And the reason some folks do is because people do win the lottery. It, it happens. We all recognize the times when it happens. It was here recently up to like a, over a billion dollars because it had gone for so long without somebody winning. But somebody does win. But imagine for a moment that you took the odds and you stretched them well beyond 292 million. What if instead of 69 white balls, you had 690 white balls? Just added one little zero to the equation. And instead of 26 red balls, well, maybe you've got 260 red balls. And instead of drawing just five white balls, what if you drew 10? And instead of drawing just one red ball, what if you drew two or three? the odds become astronomically worse. And the odds would immediately become so bad, nobody would play because nobody would ever win. Yeah, somebody might win, but instead of it being once every few weeks, it would be once in, in decades or centuries that somebody would actually win. The odds would be so terrible, even though the dollar amount would grow and grow and grow until it was in, probably into the trillions of dollars, nobody's gonna play because nobody ever actually wins at that point. And that's going to be what we're finding here. At some point, the odds of these things become so prohibitively small that it's just, we have to step back and take a look at it and say, that can't possibly have happened by chance. It has to be the result of design. But that's going to be the question. When we take this next step forward, again, we have three choices. Either the force behind these universal constants being what they are is, number one, again, the fingerprint of an outside third party. Number two, that somehow they had to be that way, that somehow there was a single force behind all of these other forces, and it, it kept everything in place because it could only be that way. I'm, I'm going to tell you that, that, again, not possible. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that topic at all. And then the third possible option is, well, yes, it's unlikely, but unlikely things happen every day. Luck could account for it. You, you will go through in a few weeks all of the times that people are going to attribute things to luck. We've already talked about Richard Dawkins doing that in The God Delusion, where he talked about these enormous amounts of luck to get over these hurdles that we're going to be reaching. And at some point, it becomes leaning a bit too much on that as a crutch. You know, on the last episode, we talked about the anthropic principle. And remember, we actually used Richard Dawkins' definition. The anthropic answer in its most general form is that we can only be discussing the question in the kind of universe that was capable of producing us. Not a bad definition, and that's true. But we talked about how inappropriate it was to use that as a pole vault to jump over difficult questions. And I don't want to completely step away from the idea that the anthropic principle doesn't have something that it can show us. The, the anthropic principle forces us to look at these questions and to take a step back and go, well, no, wait a minute. Yes, the universe is life permitting, and yes, the universe allows all of these things, 
But what are the odds of that happening? It leads us to this point of going, look at all of these various pieces that allow life to happen, that allow the universe to come together. Does that seem likely that it could have happened on its own? One of Richard Dawkins' most famous quotes, and this is from uh, Dawkins' book, The River Out of Eden. When you look at this and think about it, this is, this is a fantastic job of, an, of expressing the atheist perspective on this topic. And I want to I want to quote this for a minute and talk about it. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. That is one of Dawkins' most famous quotes. But I want to talk about that for just a minute. There's a section in there where he says, and he's talking about the universe that we see around us. At bottom, there's no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. See, the thing is, I don't think we really believe that. Ultimately speaking, and we'll talk about this when we look at the moral justification for why we believe there is a creator, but we do recognize the difference between good and evil. There are inherently some things that are good and some things that are evil. So when Dawkins says that, that we live in a universe where there is no good and there is no evil, we don't really believe that. And I don't think Dawkins actually believes that either. No design and no purpose. That's going to be the rub, and he correctly identifies it. When we take a step back and we look at this question, does the universe itself show that there is no design? Or does the universe show the evidence of, of enormous, incredible design? Does the universe actually show no purpose? Or is the universe put together so finely tuned and so incredibly well structured to allow life that it betrays the purpose of a creator, that it betrays the fingerprints of a creator whose sole purpose was perhaps to have a relationship with us? That's going to be the question that we want to address as we look at this. So what is fine-tuning? I want to take a quote from Dr. Lewis and Barnes in their book, A Fortunate Universe. And they said, and in that book they say, the fine-tuning of the universe for life is the realization that if the laws of physics were different, even by just a little bit, life would not exist. You know, I remember um, back in the 1980s, I watched an episode of Buck Rogers one time. And Buck Rogers was out fighting evil in the universe, and they, the bad guys sent someone to kill him. And this guy was from a planet that had really heavy gravity. And this super heavy gravity, well, really didn't have much of an effect on the guy, except he was this little tiny old man who was incredibly strong, and he could throw people across the room. And, okay, I liked Buck Rogers back in the 80s. It was very campy, but it was kind of a fun show, and I enjoyed it. And I still remember that. And in my mind, when I think about descriptions like what Dr. Lewis and Barnes said, what if you change the parameters of the universe? That's what pops into our heads. Well, what if gravity was a little bit stronger? Or what if... And we tend to lose sight of what they're talking about. And that's not at all what they're referring to. 
Let me, let me continue on quoting from a different section. What if the laws of physics were different? What if the building blocks, atoms and molecules, had different masses? What if we messed with the stage, playing around with the very space and time underlying the cosmos? What, what would change in the universe? And what would it mean for life? We're talking about here the very fundamental unseen forces much of the time that actually hold the universe together, that allow for stars to burn, that produce the things that make us, that allow for life to be possible on this little tiny blue planet floating in space. What if you actually made changes to the big picture items that we're talking about here? If you imagine you've built a building we're not talking about, well, what if I remodeled the entryway to the building? It would be, what would, what would we be talking about if we took all the structural supports out of the building? What would that do to it? Well, the building would collapse. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about changes to forces that are so enormous that tweaking them ever so slightly would have radical effects on the universe itself. This week, we're going to talk about how that journey began with a scientist named Fred Hoyle. Next week, we're going to bring together some examples of this to really drive home the point of exactly how big the math is on this question. After that, then we're going to look at the multiverse. I've been playing around with the order of this in my mind, and I think looking at the multiverse later is probably the best way to do it. So we're going to take a jump back in time. You remember before when we were looking at Einstein, we jumped all the way back to 1915. This time, we're going to jump back to the 1950s. And in the 1950s, scientists really began looking at some of these fundamental parameters of the universe. And a scientist by the name of Fred Hoyle began looking at this question of life and what was necessary for life to exist in the universe. Hoyle's name is one that you've probably heard. Back in his day, he was one of the most outspoken scientists of his era. He's the one who coined the phrase, the Big Bang. Fred Hoyle was an astrophysicist, and at the time, Fred Hoyle's an atheist. So this is not coming from a Christian perspective. But as Hoyle begins to look at these questions and what makes life possible, he starts looking at the, at the question of carbon in the universe. Carbon is uniquely well-suited to making life possible. For all practical purposes, without carbon, you don't have life. Is it possible you can produce some very basic limited forms of life with other elements. Yes, with silicon, you kind of can do a few things, but think about it on a, on a scale of, of likelihood. Car with carbon, you have the most chance of producing life and sustaining life out of anything else in the universe. It's not even close. You take a dramatic step downward to silicon, which silicon can maybe do a couple of things, but it's not well suited to sustaining life. And then after silicon, you just fall off the map and nothing else out there really has much of a chance of, of producing any complex life forms, or at least no life forms with any, any degree of complexity or variety. So what Hoyle steps back and recognizes is that there is an abundance of carbon in the, in the universe. And that's a little bit problematic because as Hoyle and other scientists in the 1950s start stepping back and looking at this, as they start to try to figure out, well, where did the carbon come from? It seems enormously unlikely that we would have the carbon necessary for life. Most of the elements that make us up, most of the elements that make up our planet, the things that we see around us, those things that, that those heavier elements that are critically important to life, scientists believe that most of those elements came from an earlier generation of stars. 
Carbon was ultimately produced inside of those earlier generations of stars, and then as those stars went supernova at the end of their lives and exploded, the carbon was then spread out in the galaxy and also, and ultimately, created the fuel that we would need to fuel life in the rest of the universe. But as Hoyle starts to look at this question, how the carbon got there becomes incredibly difficult to understand. And it's not just Hoyle who's looking at this. Lots of scientists come together to start looking at this problem. And it's an enormous problem. You see, where we're going to find the oven where the carbon is made is inside of those early generations of stars. But getting inside that early generation of stars, within any generation of stars, you start running into issues of complexity that the deeper we get into them, the more we start to unravel how finely tuned these issues are. There are four fundamental forces in nature that are going to be key to all of this. Gravitational force, electromagnetic force, the strong nuclear force, and the weak nuclear force. Those four, as they come together in this incredibly complex relationship, are going to rule and govern a lot of what happens inside of stars, and lots of other things too, no question, across the universe. But for our purposes today, those four forces come together, and they're going to regulate how everything is interacting inside of a star, how the stars burn, can they burn at all, do they collapse into black holes, or do they go supernova when they die? All of these kinds of things are driven by these four fundamental parameters and many, many other things as well as we look at this. Let me give you an example. If the strong nuclear forces changed by just a little bit, well, you get lots and lots of carbon, but you get almost no oxygen and therefore almost no water in the universe. So you've got lots of carbon to support life, but the universe ends up with very little water and, well, that's not going to go anywhere. We've got to have water to support life. If you tweak the strong nuclear force just a little bit the other direction, well, you get no carbon. You get lots and lots of water and lots and lots of oxygen, but, within the, but the stars don't produce any carbon, and therefore the door to life closes. So on either side of that equation, if the strong nuclear force isn't just right, no building blocks for life ever get out on the table, or the ones that do are isolated, and it's missing critical components for the rest of life. So you've got this enormously complex relationship among these four forces, but it gets way deeper than that. So what Hoyle begins to recognize is a pathway for carbon to be formed inside of stars. Now you're going to need a lot of things again to make this work. You need a beryllium atom and you need a helium atom. The two will exist just long enough in the star and the two will come together in just the right way to make this happen. Now when you're crashing atoms together, it's rather a delicate process because if they come together too hard, well, you're not going to get the reaction that you're looking for. You might get carbon to form for a second, but most likely it just shatters and breaks apart. And there's going to be a lot of things that drive that. The kinetic energy inside the star, the temperatures inside of the star, so many things, gravitational forces inside of the star. So even once you get the beryllium and you get the helium, well, now you're going to have to get the two of them to collide in just the right way. The, the big discovery that Hoyle makes is within the realm of quantum mechanics, you get something called the resonance level. The resonance level is the energy level. The energy level is the beryllium atom and the helium atom come together. And if they come together at just the right frequency, all of the forces behaving just perfectly, then the two of them will join They'll get rid of a little bit of extra energy in the process, but it'll be stable. 
And what comes out of those, and what comes out of that collision is something useful. It's carbon. And Hoyle correctly predicts what that resonance level has to be. And scientists are able to confirm that for him that he's figured out the process. The problem from Hoyle's perspective is he starts taking a step back and looking at this. And he starts looking at this relationship between the four fundamental forces, between beryllium and helium and what's going on inside of the stars. And, and it keeps spreading. The, the closer that scientists look at this, the more complex it becomes. Things like the masses of quarks, there, there's this intimate relationship between up and down quarks and how their masses and what their masses have to be. And there's nine different conditions themselves that regulate that, that relationship and how all of this comes together. All of these conditions have to come together in such a way that Hoyle finally steps back and, look, and looks at it from the perspective of a scientist. And again, Hoyle's atheism was leading him in the other direction. But in the end, when Hoyle looks at this, he says, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics, as well as with chemistry and biology, and there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The number one, ca the number one calculates from the facts seems to me so overwhelming as to put the conclusion almost beyond question. Even as Hoyle is looking at this from just a steadfastly atheistic perspective, he has to take a step back and go, it's not possible. The odds are so prohibitively against it. The only thing that could do that, the only thing that could create that building block of us, carbon, that we need across the entire universe, the only way this forms is so incredibly unlikely it has to be the fingerprint of intelligence. This kind of thing just doesn't happen on its own. And that was the discovery that Hoyle made. We're gonna use that as the jumping off point next week. We've, Hoyle has figured out for us, okay, this is what it would take for a universe to be filled with enough carbon to create the life that we see around us. But how many more of these are there? How far do these odds go? Is this one of the one of the one of the most prohibitive odds? And it's and spoiler alert, it's not. Or are there things that are so remarkably unlikely that even Richard Dawkins seems to be starting to come around on this issue? And that is where we're going to find ourselves next week. I want to thank you so much for joining us on this week's Seeking Proof Finding Grace. If you like this podcast, I hope you'll hit the like and subscribe button. You can also find our podcasts on Spotify and iTunes. And of course, you can find us on our website at prooftograce.com. If you've got any questions or want to reach out to us, you can do so at prooftograce at yahoo.com. And I look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you so much for joining us. Bye-bye.